I'd just like to start by letting you know that uh, <clears throat> Pastor Walt is currently at camp meeting. And I think at this moment, he's teaching Sabbath school in the Pepperwood Pavilion. Now, you think you can be a tough crowd at times. <laughs> he preached yesterday at 11 o'clock. I prayed for him at 10.30, and then I looked up and saw it was 11.05 and decided to pray for him again. Because like I said, you think you can be a tough crowd. But as far as I know, everything is, is, is going well, except that I know that he misses you. And he misses us when he, when he is away. So I don't think we miss him as much as Brenda does, but uh, we do miss him. Yes, we do. Is there any word, is there any biblical word that you can think of that has crossed over more into the modern vernacular than the word apocalypse? Um, it's always been that way. When the world speaks of the word apocalypse, what, what, do, what are they calling to mind when the world speaks of apocalypse? It's always talking about the end. And we assume that's what apocalypse means. It means the end or what's happening at the end. And every, every generation seems to have some sort of apocalypse they attach to it. You know, in the, in, in the 70s, uh, we had a, a Hollywood movie that attached the word to the Vietnam War. And, and I'm sure for some people there, it sure seemed like the end. Um, uh, recently, it's been more, I, I guess, uh, uh, innocuous than something as tangible as a war. But uh, lately, Hollywood has put the word vampire in front of it, vampire apocalypse, and, and then even put zombie apocalypse in front of it. But either way, there are pictures and there are pictures of the end. And really, that's not what the word apocalypse means. Um, and if, sometimes if I think that the world really knew what it meant, they probably wouldn't use it anymore. But I'm actually glad that they use it. I'm actually glad that they associate it with the end or the end of the world. Someone has said, though, either the apocalypse finds a man mad or it leaves him mad when you begin to study it. I want you to think of some of the cases in our recent past. David Koresh in the United States. Shoko Asahara in Japan, Luke Luray in Europe. There are thousands of mystics who flock to Jerusalem every year looking for the Messiah to be revealed. Either they come looking for him or they are there to reveal to them that he is them. Thousands. There's an ancient Jewish tale in the Mishnah that says four famous rabbis, four famous sages entered the world of apocalyptic vision. No one survived the visit. The first one died right away. The second one lost his faith. The third became demented. And the fourth proclaimed himself the Messiah. So when we go to study the apocalypse, can we go to the apocalypse? Can we go to Revelation and come out of it without one out of four of us going crazy? Think about it. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Can we study Revelation without going crazy? Can we study Revelation without going nuts? We said that this was a summer duet. I, Daniel, and I, John. I get to introduce you to John today. I get to introduce you to the I, John part of our summer duet, which means we have to open the the book of Revelation, but I don't want to open it and lose Terry and Elizabeth's mind, okay? And I think that we can do it, but you got to lay out some ground rules. The first ground rule is you got to figure out what apocalypse means. It's the Greek word apokalypsis. It's a revealing, an uncovering, or a revelation. That's all the word means. And the verb form means literally to take the cover off. Okay, apocalypse means an uncovering, a revealing. So rule number one, that's what apocalypse means. It doesn't mean the end. It doesn't mean the end of the world. It doesn't mean the end of anything. It is a revealing to pull the cover off. Rule number two, as with Daniel, it's a real person who wrote this in a real time and space. The author is real. He's a Jew. His name is John or Yohanan in Greek and Hebrew. Yahweh is gracious is what his name means. 
The ancient historian Josephus named at least 17 other prominent Jews in his writing that were all named John. It's a very, very common name. Yohanan ben Zebedee, John, son of Zebedee, brother of James, beloved disciple of Jesus. John is the one who refers to himself as the one Jesus loved. I love that about John. That's how he identifies himself. I'm the one Jesus loved. As opposed to the other 11, I'm the one he loved. And notice when he does call himself that when he writes his gospel, most of the other disciples have been dead for at least 50 years when he does it. The place where he is is real. Patmos. Okay, it's an island, 16 mile square, square mile island in the Aegean Sea. In the book of Revelation, the, book, the word sea or thalassa is mentioned 26 times because that's all he's about. He's on that island and that's all it is. It's just a rock in the Aegean Sea. If you go on a Greek cruise, you will wave at Patmos. The ships never stop there. It's just a rock. It's where Rome had most of its uh, rock quarries. He was exiled there by the emperor Domitian hoping to finally get rid of this guy. This was the third or fourth attempt to try to martyr this guy. And he wouldn't die. He's probably about 90 years old. And by the way, he doesn't write the Gospel of John until after Revelation. When he writes John, he probably is more like 100 to 110 years old. They tried to boil him in oil and it didn't work. So this was the last shot. And by the way, when they showed up figuring that he had starved to death... Guess what? There he was. So they took him off the island, put him back in Ephesus and said, forget it. And let him live another 20 years and to give us another gospel. The next rule is that this is a Hebrew book. If he is a Jewish author, he's a Hebrew book. He may have written in Greek. Now, you have to understand, Greek to them was a language. It simply was a language. It was a way to get it out there. Internationally, everybody spoke Greek. So they wrote the New Testament in Greek so that everybody would get a copy of it, so everybody would understand it and know it. But these were Jews. They were Hebrew authors. They were steeped in Hebrew thought. They may not have written in Hebrew, but they thought Hebrew. Revelation is the most Hebrew book of all the New Testament. There are 2,000 uh, Hebrew allusions in there. And when we say Hebrew, it means alluding to the Old Testament scriptures, to the Hebrew scriptures. 400 explicit references, 90 literal citations of the Torah and the prophets, or of the law and the prophets. It is more faithful to the original Hebrew than the Septuagint is the third century Greek translation of the Old Testament. To find John's intentions, you've got to spend some time in the Hebrew Scriptures. In other words, in order to know the last book of the Bible, you really need to know a, few, a little bit about the first books of the Bible. The Apocalypse is rooted, though, in one particular Old Testament book. Just one. What do you think it is? We just spent a few weeks in it. That's right. Daniel ended in a beatitude. In chapter 12, it said, blessed is the one. Remember, a beatitude is, is something beautiful. Okay, Oh, happy how you should be. When the Bible says blessed is the one, it means, oh, how happy the one is who waits and reaches for the end of the 1335 days. As for you, Daniel, go your way till the end. You will rest, and at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. He's told, go to sleep, Daniel. Don't worry about it. You don't. The reason that the book of Daniel is sealed in chapter 12 is that the events that take place, he's not going to understand until those events take place. So he wouldn't understand. He would have to live until 1798 in order for, those, for him to understand those. But he's going to die. And God says, rest, just rest. In the end, you'll be resurrected. In the end, you'll receive your reward, just like everyone else who dies with the knowledge that God saves. So Daniel ends in a beatitude. Revelation begins with one. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is what? The time is near. He tells Daniel, go to sleep. The time is far away. 
1260 years, 2300 years, it is far away. As for you, John, writing in the first century, the time is what? The time is near. So you and me living in the 21st one after this, what is the message for us? It's probably nearer than it was for John. Just a little. About 2,000 years. Daniel used the constant technical phrase in his, in his verses. There was this technical phrase that he used over and over. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night. He wanted you to know that this real author, this real person, this real prince in Babylonian exile was a real person. And he's the one that saw this. He's reporting it directly to you. I, Daniel, saw this. Here the account ends. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly terrified me. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I tried to understand it. So I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. And he says it four or five more times in his book. Do you get what he's saying? He wants you to know that it's him. Revelation has the same. I, John. Your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Real person, real place, real time. Just like Daniel, real person, real place, real time. And they don't want you to be mistaken that they are reporting it directly. This is just what I saw and I'm giving it to you. So those are some ground rules. Before you open Revelation, you need to know these ground rules so that we don't lose a fourth of us. So a fourth of us does not do not lose our faith, lose our mind, lose our sanity. But the most important rule of all, that no matter what happens, this is the most important rule. That it's not just apocalypse. It's not just revealing It's who it is revealing. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. This is a revealing of Jesus Christ. It's not a revealing of the end. It's not a revealing of the events of the end. It is a revealing of Jesus. I need louder amens than that because this is the main number one rule. If you don't get this, I got to lock a fourth of you away in an insane asylum. The revelation of Jesus Christ. See, we forget that even people who are supposed to know this. We forget that. We all of a sudden begin to, to, to look at the symbolic language and we begin to say, well, this was that and this was that. And these are the events that lead up to the end. And we miss completely that this is supposed to be a revelation of Jesus and not the events of the end. This is what drives us crazy is when we're trying to look at a symbolic word written 2,000 years ago, yes, by a real person, but in a language that is not nearly lost, but that we need, we need uh, men and women with a bunch of letters after their name to study the language and tell us what it says. And we're trying to take a word or a symbol and saying, well, that's a helicopter. No wonder people go nuts. No wonder we say bye-bye. Because they forgot the number one rule. Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. The revelation of Jesus Christ. No matter what happens from here on out. No matter what we do in the book of Revelation. No matter how many backflips we turn theologically, philosophically, eschatologically. I love that word, eschatology. Eschatology, by the way, is the study of the end. If this was a book about the end, it would be the eschatology of the end, not the revealing of Jesus Christ. You with me? You got number one rule, right? This is it and above all else. So the first question you have to ask is, does John need a revealing of Jesus? What was John's title in his gospel? The one who Jesus loved. Does John need Jesus revealed to him? 
We're the ones that need it. But apparently John does need a revealing. What kind of revealing does John need? Let's take a look. It says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. He describes Jesus in three ways. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Okay. How does John know Jesus? He knows the one who was. Well, actually, he doesn't. But he kind of does. What John really knew was the one who was. And he is the one who was for us. What John doesn't know is the one who is and the one who is to come. He kind of knows the one who is. He kind of does. Okay? But he says the one who is to come. He can't be defined, in other words, is what he's saying. He didn't have an end, a beginning. He doesn't have an end. And he exists in between. You can't define God with a singular definition. This reminds me of when Moses asked God what his name was and God just said, you tell him, I am. I am who I am. Done. Period. Isn't that the same definition? The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. The God of Israel can't be captured or limited to one. The God we worship today, you realize, is the same God that was worshipped by Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet he is present today. He didn't die with them. He wasn't buried with them. The patriarchs are in their graves. They didn't take their God with them. He's with us today. Same God. You and I get to walk in the same covenant as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He exists. See, but John changes verbs. He's not just the one who was. He's not just the one who is. He's also the one to what? To come. God exists. But all the knowledge we have of him, all the experience that history has, is that he intervenes in history, he intervenes in the present, but only the future holds out the full promise of God. And the way that John writes this, he's actually telling us, you know what, the best is yet to come. I knew who he was, I kind of know who this guy is now, but I'll tell you, is when he comes again is when it's going to be the best. Fully revealed. Completely revealed. Now we only have a glimpse. Now Paul says we see through a glass darkly. But the future holds the promise. He's more than the God of memory. He's more than the God of existence. He's more than the God of spirituality, of communion. He is the God who is to come. He even quotes Jesus in saying it. Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. If he were saying it in Hebrew, he would have said, I am El Shaddai. I'll take it that you're stunned, okay? Or are you scared? Because usually when we think of the end and we think of the coming, even the most devout believers have a tinge of what? Just a tinge of fear. Just a tinge of fear. But the one who needs revealing is the one who is and the one who is to come. Right? Because the last time we knew that anybody saw him, the last time we knew anybody saw him was this guy. As far as we know, it was the last appearance made. This glimpse that John gets in chapter 1 of Revelation is the last time anyone saw the one who is. Okay. What we've been left with is his existence in us. And you're a beautiful people and you're a beautiful family. But we don't quite reveal all of Jesus, do we? Like Paul said, a glass, what? Darkly. Jars of clay we all are. But the last time he was seen was by this guy. So we need the one who is. And we need a vision especially of the one who is to come. See, 
the apostles knew who he was. They saw the one who was when he was. Okay, for us he was. For them it was is. All right, he was walking. The word made flesh. Walking and talking among them. And they said, we saw him so clearly. He, Paul tells the Galatians, I preached to you Jesus so clearly. It was as if you were at the cross. I, I portrayed him as publicly crucified. You should know exactly who he was. That was the confidence the apostles had. But even to them, they need a revealing. Just like you and I need a revealing. So in, in, in those ways, we're in the same boat with John. So that when John witnesses, he's actually witnessing on the behalf of us. John then becomes us. Sitting in that vision. John becomes us. He does for us what we cannot do. You with me? We need a revealing just as John needed a revealing. You got to remember where we've been guided by Daniel. The exiles have all hope gone. They're in a foreign land. They're unable to worship their God. The instruments that they use to praise Him are hung in the willows by the rivers of Babylon. They can't even praise their God in their state. Nebuchadnezzar has defeated them and their God, and Nebuchadnezzar has convinced them he has become their God. And all they had was the word of the prophets. That's all they had. Everything else is gone. The temple, the land. The covenant, the promise to Moses, it was all wrapped up in the temple in the land. It's all gone. And the Babylonians are teasing them. Sing us a song of Israel. Sing us a song about the God that we just defeated and took away from you. And Israel can't do it. They take their instruments and they hang them in the trees by the Euphrates River. And all they had was the word of the prophets. Jeremiah told them it would happen beforehand. This is coming, they said. During, they were given a vision by Ezekiel, and he's shown a vision of God still on his throne while they're still in captivity. And there is a rainbow above the throne just to remind them of their promise to Noah to give them life. There is fire and lightning reminds them of the promise given on Sinai after delivering them from another set of captives. And then there was Daniel. Letting them know that God is in charge. We're not here because Nebuchadnezzar was more powerful than anyone else. We're here because God is in charge. Daniel's message to them was, God's got this. 2,300 years and beyond, God has this. They had Jeremiah, they had Daniel, they had Ezekiel. And I'm here to tell you the greatest news We have John. Revelation is our letter to the exiles. Isn't that great news? But only if you remember rule number one. Is that just as Daniel's prophecy was a revelation of who God was, is, and is to come. You have to understand that revelation is and only is about Jesus Christ. Pastor Walt pointed out to us that that Daniel, in asking how long this false god would rule in Daniel chapter eight, he says, "How long?" And the answer comes back, twenty three hundred years. And then the and then he he wants to know when. He wants to know why. And 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 in chapter nine, he reveals to him one thing. In chapter nine, what does he reveal to him? He reveals to him Jesus. He tells him, you know, in, 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 in subtracting the 490 weeks, the, 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 the 490 years, the seven weeks, the, the, the two weeks. You remember all of that, all of that? In the middle of it, he says, in the middle of it, the one will come and take away sin. In the middle of it, he says, the Messiah will come. The answer to Daniel's desperate question about the end is Jesus. That's the answer. God has for him. And I want you to notice that as soon as he knows the Messiah is coming, Daniel doesn't ask any more questions about the prophecy. Before that, he was so terrified, he was sick. He laid as if dead when he heard the number 2,300 years. So desperate that he's flipping through Jeremiah and trying to show God where he was wrong. 
Seventy, not 2,300. Seventy. And he's sick and he's desperate. As soon as he hears that in the middle of that week the Messiah will come, he ceases all questions. All he needs to know about the end is Jesus. All we need to know about the end is Jesus. Because the answers are coming. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. He's coming again. Now, that's not new to John. Okay, this isn't new to John. What about this revealing that has to come to John? Okay, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, you have to understand, I told you before that Patmos is a rock. Okay, that's all it is. I don't know how long he's been there before he gets the vision, but he's there. He's not seen another living soul. I mean, it's, it's, he is completely, absolutely exiled. What would you think that it was all of a sudden nice and quiet for days and you don't hear another noise, just the water, and somebody walks up behind you and blasts a trumpet in your ear? Because it says so in Greek. A loud voice. Megaphone, it is amplified. A loud voice, and it sounds like a what? Sounds like a trumpet. Imagine being in a dark room, no noise, and all of a sudden a trumpet blasts out. What are you going to do? I'm not going to do what John does. See, because there's something about that voice I think that John finds familiar. You know how I know? Because he doesn't freak out. He's not like the cat in the cartoons that goes up to the ceiling and grabs on and holding on like that. It doesn't happen. He's not afraid. He turns to see it. Did I miss the verse? Write in a book what you see. What are they? I'm sorry. Hang on just a second. There it is. Sorry. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. He turns to see it. It was a familiar voice. No matter how loud it was, it was familiar to him. One he hasn't heard in quite a while. And when he turns, he sees seven golden lampstands. What else does he see? In the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest was a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, which has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. He said, I, I thought I recognized his voice, but wow! And he barely recognizes him. He says, one like a son of man. He's being revealed, what? The one who is. Because he didn't know him before. Not like this. Not like this. I thought I knew who he was. I thought I knew who he was. And in his right hand, he holds seven stars. And out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This is the glorified Christ. This is the one who is. This is the way he is right now, the divine Jesus. By the way, we've seen him before. Daniel saw him. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, verse 9, he says, Thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was what? It was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure like wool, and his throne was fiery flames, and his wheels were burning fire. In the middle of chapter 7 and that horrible doom and the beast and everything else, uh, Daniel says the solution is Jesus pronouncing judgment. Now he's here appearing to John. Get it? Israel had Daniel. We have who? We have John. Now you're getting there. But all these things, all these things that that happen, in other words, knowing who Jesus is. When John first met Jesus and figured out who he was, what did he do? He worshipped him. That's right. He worshipped him. Okay. All of that happens before Matthew 17. So for us, it was the one who was. 
And for him at the time, it was the one who is. But now the one who is, something else is going on. Something's different. He's being revealed to him. He needs Jesus to be revealed to him. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Don't be afraid. He does worship him here, but he only worships him out of what? Out of fear. Because he's being revealed to him. If he didn't need a revelation, if this was the old Jesus who was to come, John would have worshipped him the same way that he did back in the day. But he needs Jesus revealed to him here. He falls at his feet, puts his hand and says, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last. By the way, a great message right there. Didn't tell him to stand up. Okay? Didn't say just, you know, stand up, don't be afraid. He leaves him in the form, uh, in the position of worship and tells him don't be afraid. The message for the end time is to not be afraid, but continue to what? Continue to worship. Why? Because he is the first and the last. The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. So we're worshiping the promise of the one who is to come. We've had revealed to us the one who was. We know somewhat of the one who is. We haven't personally seen him, but we have who? We've got John. That's right. And he describes him to us. The living one was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. He's saying, you know why you worship me? Because I am the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. So what is it about the end? Write the things you've seen in the places which are to take place and the things that will take place after these things. So let me ask you, what is it about the end that will make it difficult to worship Jesus? Even though he will be revealed to us and even though the one who is to come is to be revealed to us, what will make it so difficult? The same thing that made it difficult for Daniel and for his friends and everyone else. A false godlike power forcing them to worship him. Daniel's visions clued us in. Revelation will tell them all again. Although in Revelation, John won't call it a little horn. He'll call it a beast. And then another beast will arise that appears to be just like Jesus. But it actually is exactly like the dragon. The false church will imitate the true church right down to a Trinity-like experience. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the dragon, the first beast, the second beast. Before it all happens, God's horror show, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. You all know what I'm talking about. The only parts that Hollywood makes movies about. Because they think that that's apocalypse. That's the end. And it is nasty. And it is a horror show. It is a literal horror show. But guess what? It's God's horror show. He's in charge. And no matter how bad it gets, the one thing you remember is this is a revealing of Jesus Christ. No matter how bad this gets, the one who is the one who was and the one who is to come has got this. And he says, continue to worship even though you're what? Even though you're afraid. See, remember the loud voice behind him. The loud voice comes from behind him. Is that the past or the future? If it's behind us, is it the past or the future? Ha! Not in Hebrew thought. In Hebrew thought, they put the past behind you. You know why? Because you can't see it. The past is in front of you because you can see it. It's clear what you see. The past is in front of you, just as the present is in front of you. In Hebrew thought, the voice is behind you. Jesus is calling to him from where? From the future, the one who is to come. The hope in all of this is the one who is to come. 
Yes, we need revealing of the one who is right now. But John has given it to us. John witnesses it at this moment right here. What does he look like? John can tell you exactly what he looks like. He can tell you exactly what he sounds like. He can tell you what he's dressed in. Anybody ever asked you, what's Jesus wearing today? Robe down to his feet, gold sash. How do you know that? John saw him. John turns to see. He's not alarmed by the voice. It sounds familiar. Imagine how long it's been since he's heard that voice. Imagine all he's been through since then. Like I said, they've tried to martyr him four times by now. All his friends are dead. He watched them all get martyred. He's seen the church get persecuted. uh, um, First by, by zealous Jews, the next by Rome. Imagine all he's been through. And then to hear that voice. And he turns to see him and he says, whoa. Wow. Our first reaction should be like John's. Fall is dead before him. But Revelation guarantees us that the one who is coming is the one who gives us present hope. And the present hope of the past, which we clearly see in front of us. Without the certainty of the future, the anguish we'll experience in the horror show will be overwhelming. But Jesus says, I've revealed myself and I will reveal myself again. If it overwhelms us, we'll have no desire to wait. We won't have any what it takes to wait. This is why he says, blessed are those who persevere. Blessed are those who overcome. Blessed are those who continue to worship even though they're afraid. Blessed are those who continue to worship even though the imitation will be so great, so fine that you won't be able to trust your finite senses. We won't be able to trust what we see. We won't be able to trust what we hear. We won't be able to trust what we touch. Everything about the beast will look so good to us. Not only will he appear to be like Jesus, the whole world wants him to be Jesus. We'll talk about this when we get to Revelation 13, but we hinted at it in our Noah service. A God that allows you to be like Jesus up to a point. That's very appealing. That's a God that we would create. Not this slain lamb who always looks like he's losing. Not this one who dies for his enemies. Not this one who sheds blood for people who will never ever turn to him. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving as God and Father to be him, glory and dominion forever and ever. That's a pretty good gospel. And if you think about it, it is the everlasting gospel. The faithful witness who loves us, The firstborn from the dead who died for our sin and freed us. And the ruler of the kings of the earth who makes us a kingdom of priests and get to walk with him and to talk with him. In the end, the message is the same. You've been freed. You've been loved and are loved. And you get to walk with him. And to talk with him. That's a pretty good definition of the gospel. I want you to notice he's wearing a robe down to his toes. And a golden sash across his chest. Guess who he's dressed like? The only other person you ever find a golden sash across is the high priest. I hate to dig it up and to go back, but I want you to remember the sanctuary. And remember, the only people that took part on on the inside of that court are the who? Are the priests. 
And there are three compartments in the sanctuary, and there's only one compartment in where the God dwells himself. And who was the only one that was allowed inside of there? The high priest. Jesus appears in the last days. And by the way, seven scenes in Revelation. It's, it's, it's a seven-act play. Seven scenes, a perfect number, seven scenes. And every time that a new uh, act comes on, it looks a little familiar, but they've changed the stage just a little bit, and it's a glimpse of the sanctuary in heaven. Always opens with a sanctuary scene. And this one who is to come right now, though, is dressed as the high priest. And remember in the outer court, you brought your, your sacrifice, and your sin was completely atoned for. The priest washed himself and the sacrifice and put it on the altar. Sin atoned for. Done. They were washed, baptized anew. Go into the next place. And, and, and there is uh, prayer ascending to heaven. And there is bread and there's wine and there's a light unto the world. Perfectly interceded for. You and I pray to God. We pray in Jesus' name. So perfectly atoned for, perfectly interceded for. In other words, my, my, my righteousness is as of filthy rags. My offering is nothing. I go and, and, and somewhere between it and the throne room of heaven, Jesus stands and he sprinkles it with incense and he sweetens it and he covers it in his blood and he covers it in his robe so that it, when it reaches the Father, it doesn't see sinful Greg. He sees a perfect son of man. Perfectly atoned for. Perfectly interceded for. What are you waiting for? All that's left is to pull back the veil and walk into the presence of God. In order to get through the end time, you will have to understand that about Jesus, about you, and about the God who loves you so. What are you waiting for? Is there a sin that you've committed you can't believe you can be forgiven of? Or are your sins so small you feel you don't have to bother God with them? You've been carrying around a burden way too long and I don't want you to go another minute, not another minute, without knowing that you can leave it at His feet. And that you can walk in his righteousness. And you can quit striving on your own. And you could quit worrying that God is going to look under your robe. You can quit looking over your shoulder. And you could look completely ahead. As clear as the past is, you could turn to the one who is to come. You could hear that familiar voice. And he reveal everything to you. You can't exist in the end time without it. We can't persevere. We can't overcome. I'm telling you, next week we start God's horror show, and it is horrible. You can't walk another step, not another step, without the one who is to come. He can be yours right now. Catch me, catch any of our lay pastors, catch somebody to pray with you when we're done. If you if you have never done it before, there's nothing like nothing like giving your heart and your sin to Jesus. You can give it to him right now. Don't go another day. Certainly don't try to face that horror show that's waiting for us alone. Because then Jesus he plays a funny joke on us. He does all that for us. And then he puts us all together and says, okay, now do it together. Because he'll bring you to this family. And as dysfunctional as this family is, it's a family. And we'll all walk and stumble and fall and triumph together. We don't have to be alone anymore. We have the one who is to come walking among us, walking amongst the lampstands. And we have all of us to have and to hold the revelation of Jesus Christ.
let's sing together a new song about the one who is the Alpha and Omega, who was and is and is to come, the first and the last. This will be a new song to most of you. I think at this point it's really worth learning and singing together. You are Alpha and Omega. We worship you, our Lord. You are worthy to be praised. Let's sing it together. Father and our God, 
we worship the one you sent. We worship the faithful witness who loves us, the firstborn of the dead who freed us from our sin, and the ruler of all heaven and earth who makes us to be a kingdom of priests. We praise you, Lord, that to today we are free and that today we can walk and talk with you thanks to Jesus. Lord, you're speaking to hearts here today. I just ask that if there's anyone here who is hearing your word for the first or for the thousandth time and asking and hear you asking just for a little trust, just for one step, just to to understand, we just ask that you that you bring them forward, that you bring them to you. And that as we face this perilous end time, Lord, we thank you that you have revealed him to us. The one who was, the one who is, and we praise you for the one who is to come. I thank you for such an honor and privilege and warmth to be in this family, to live in this family at this time. And I pray for this family and I lift them up to you that we become a safe place. We become a place to where the end time can be can be rowed out safety and comfort and ease because you have called us. We thank you for bringing us together this Sabbath and every Sabbath, and we praise you for all that you have done for us. In his name, amen. We get to study a little more his word. Discipleship classes will start in just a few minutes.